Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, March 27th by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today is the 18th message in our sermon series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been following the Apostle Paul and his companions on what are called their missionary journeys. And they've been traveling around the Gentile Roman world preaching the gospel in what would be modern-day Turkey. Last week, we looked at Paul's three-year relationship with the city of Ephesus and the believers there uh, and the church that was established. And at the end of that story, we, we saw that Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem and there was this very emotional and tearful goodbye that the believers shared together. Paul had gone to the churches in the Gentile region there and collected offerings from the churches to take back to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem there had been a famine and the Gentile churches wanted to show their love and support of the church in Jerusalem. The thing that made them so tearful as Paul was leaving Ephesus is that he said, and you will never see my face again. And you know that was a true statement. This was Paul's final journey. The believers had feared for Paul's life if he went to Jerusalem. Uh, through the Apostle Paul himself, who'd been prompted by the Spirit, as well as through Agabus, one of the prophets, they had testified that hardship and suffering would come for Paul. And Agabus said that he would be bound and turned over to the Gentiles. Now, they interpret this as, Paul, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. But Paul had a different interpretation on that. He actually believed that it was his calling to go back to Jerusalem. And here's how he put it in Acts 21.13. Paul answered them, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. On more than one occasion, occasion the Lord had uh, come to Paul to tell him that he was to testify in Jerusalem one last time. And so Paul was convinced of that. And today we're looking at our story in Jerusalem through the eyes of a Roman commander named Claudius. He finds himself getting caught up in the whole story of the Apostle Paul as he comes into Jerusalem. Now this commander is just doing his job. He's just there to keep order and peace in the city of Jerusalem, which is easier said than done for sure. Because when you're working for Rome, no one wanted to rule in the city of Jerusalem. Of all the people groups that Rome had conquered, they were the worst. I mean, they were feisty and resistant and obstinate. A very hard people to try to govern and control. Mostly because they were monotheistic. They believed in one God, the true and living God. And of course, in Rome, they were polytheistic. They believed in all sorts of gods, including worshipping the emperor himself. So this created conflict for the Jews. And that conflict came out at the very center of their faith, which was in Jerusalem, which was in the temple. Now the Jews had this radical political party known as the Zealots. They were extremists and they cause problems for whoever was there at whatever time trying to govern over Israel. If you were going to be governing in the Roman Empire, the last place you wanted to be posted was to the nation of Israel. And if you were posted to the nation of Israel, you did not want to be posted to the province of Judea. And if you were posted in the province of Judea, the last place you wanted to oversee was the city of Jerusalem. It was the hot spot for all political and religious tensions, and that's exactly where we find our Roman commander, Claudius, serving. And he's about to get tangled up with the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm going to give you the end of the story at the beginning. Um, 
I found out that my wife kind of likes to do this when she reads novels. She goes to the end, reads the end, then goes back and finishes the story. I don't know why you'd bother finishing the story after you've read the end of it. But here I am telling you the end of the story as we're starting into our sermon today. I hope you stick with us. Claudius three times tried to figure out who Paul was and why these accusations and attacks were coming against him from the Jews. But ultimately he fails. And so he pushes Paul up the ladder to the next level of investigation. And so he sends him on to the governor of the region, Judea, to Felix, who is staying at the palace of Herod on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in a city called Caesarea. And he sends this letter along, which kind of summarizes for us uh, the story that we're about to dig into. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, he's the commander in Jerusalem. To His Excellency, Governor Felix, who's in Herod's palace in Caesarea. Greetings. This man, Paul, was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish religious council. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against them that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So that's where our story's going. Now let's see how it gets there. Our story today is about the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem, and it's a pretty long um, passage of scripture. It runs from Acts 21 to Acts 23. And of course, that's a lot to try to cover. And so I've broken it down into four different scenes Scene number one is Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. Scene two, Paul comes before the Roman governor, or commander, I mean, Claudius. Uh, scene three, Paul stands before the Sanhedrin. And scene four, Paul is transferred to Caesarea. So let's start in scene one. Paul, in Jerusalem. He's arriving there. He's left Ephesus and those believers, and he's getting on his way to Jerusalem. When he first arrives there, he's well received warmly by the Christians, the brothers and sisters in Christ in the church in Jerusalem. Um, James would be the leader of that church. That's the half-brother of Jesus, as well as the elders. They're there, and they are listening to the Apostle Paul as he recounts for them everything that God is doing amongst the Gentiles. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 21, when they heard this, they praised God. So, so far, so good, Paul coming to Jerusalem. However, not everyone feels this way. There was a group of Jews who were there, and they were a group of Jews who were very zealous for the law of Moses. And they are thinking that the Apostle Paul has been opposing the teachings of Moses in the law. And now with Paul coming to Jerusalem, this is going to be problematic. So James and the leaders want to warn Paul of this situation. There's an accusation, there's the problem, and there's a solution that they come up with for Paul. So let's take a look at this. In verse 21, they, which is a reference to those Jews who were zealous for the law, they have been informed that you, Paul, teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So the problem is this. They will certainly hear that you have come. In other words, Paul, just by your presence being here, your words are not going to be able to change their mind about what they think about you. You need to do something in this case, actions speak louder than words so that they will know that you do not oppose the law of Moses. Here's their solution. So do what we tell you. 
take these four men to the temple and pay the fee associated with the vow that they have taken and join in with them in their purification rites. Participate and pay is what they tell Paul in this particular um, vow and the, the purification cost or the rights or the cost of the rights that go along with that. So what they're trying to say is, Paul, your, your actions here are needed. And if you do this, we believe that everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you. So that's their solution. Now, we read this and we go, man, what's the big deal? Like this sounds rather technical about Jewish laws and purification rights. And to us, it's just not a big deal. But to them, at that time in Jerusalem, it was a big deal. Actually, a huge deal. In the minds of the accusers of the Apostle Paul, they see him setting himself up with his teachings against that of Moses, and therefore against God. They assumed things about Paul's teachings and actions. Um, these are not actually true things that they believe about Paul, but you know how the saying goes, perception is reality. So first of all, the accusation they bring is false. Paul was not teaching Jews to not follow the law of Moses. Rather, he was just teaching Gentiles that they did not have to adhere to the law. He saw it as an unnecessary burden for the Gentiles to bear. And even Peter had said this in Acts 15. We looked at this passage before, where Peter says to these same Jewish Christians who are law-abiding Christians, okay, he says to them, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No! Exclamation mark. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So Paul's actions to join in and to pay for the purification rites of these four men might have worked to suffice that group of Jewish Christians that were in Jerusalem. But there's a second group of Jewish people that are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And they're coming from the region of the province of Asia where the Apostle Paul has predominantly been preaching the gospel with his companions. And they are coming with another accusation against the Apostle Paul. And so the situation in Jerusalem is about to escalate. So let's read in Acts 21, verse 27. And I do not have it for you on the PowerPoint, so I will read it for you. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, and against our law, and against this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now this is actually a very serious charge that they are bringing against the Apostle Paul. Because any person who had done this would be punishable by death. Even if you were a Roman citizen, you could be killed for this offense. There was a barrier inside the temple court that separated the Gentiles from the Jews, and the Gentiles could not go into the Jewish quarters. No Gentile was allowed to do that. And if Paul had done that, he would have been breaking the law, one which would have been upheld by Roman rule. Even though the Romans really didn't care too much about Jewish laws, this one in particular, they were willing uh, to enforce. Now, Paul had not done this. It was a false accusation based on assumptions. And here's what it was based on. Verse 29 of chapter 21 tells us, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. <laughs> assumptions, right? They get us into trouble. 
uh, we need to be very careful about making assumptions. They can hurt people. And we kind of do it intuitively, don't we? So if we don't want to make assumptions, do you know how we avoid that? Here's the answer. We ask. If we want to know the truth about something, then we need to ask the person or the people. Don't assume that you know the why. Assumptions can hurt people. This leads to scene two, which we're going to read uh, Paul before the commander, Claudius. <clears throat> this is where he comes into the story. Let's read together verse 30. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Now remember, this is because these Jews from the province of Asia have said that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. They were aroused. They came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. So they drag him out of the temple. And they shut the gates. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. We've seen this before. He, the commander, at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. How nice of them. The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Sounds like a fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. Aren't all riots the same? People don't really know why they're there. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! Pretty intense moment. Much like Ephesus, which we were reading about last week. But unlike last week, where Paul did not get a chance to address the crowd, today we're going to see that he gets to address the home crowd. These are his fellow countrymen, and this is the city Jerusalem, which Paul was well acquainted with, and he wants to give a defense of his faith and his actions. So let's carry on reading. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, which is a close, like a Hebrew dialect. It was the common language that the Jewish people spoke there in Jerusalem. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Oh, he speaks our language. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, <clears throat> born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. I studied under Gamal uh, Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, remember that's a reference to the Christians, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus at the synagogues and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So whatever these people assumed about Paul's nationality, whether they thought he was Egyptian or Greek or whatever, he quieted them when they realized that he actually spoke Aramaic, the same language that they speak. And then Paul informs them of his identity. I am a Jew. Not only am I a Jew, I'm, I was born in a prominent city, one 
that was a city of education, had a university, Tarsus, moved to Jerusalem to what? To study, to be, to study the law, to be a Pharisee. Under who? Gamaliel, who was an esteemed Pharisee and zealous for protecting the law. Just as zealous as you are for God today, so was I. In fact, I was so zealous, I obtained permission to go and get people who were of the way and persecute them. All of this to this point is working for Paul. He's identifying with his audience. He's clarifying where the assumptions are wrong that they have about him and about what he teaches. And he's bringing them along on the same journey that he himself has taken. The journey that God has brought Paul along on to bring him to a true understanding of faith in Jesus, the Son of God, risen to life again. So, Paul goes on to share his testimony about how that happens. How he was going uh, on that road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians of the way, right? Or people of the way. But it was about noon when a bright light flashed and blinded Paul. And he hears a voice, but he doesn't know who it is. Paul's confused. The voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul's trying to figure this out. Something's not adding up to him in his mind that this voice is saying, why do you persecute me? And if this voice is God... How is it that God is asking him that question when Paul is the one who's carrying out God's will? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. So Paul's companions take him into Damascus, and uh, Ananias is sent by God to Paul to help Paul know his mission. After three days, at the command of Ananias, Paul's sight comes back, and then Ananias says to him in Acts 22, the God of our ancestors has chosen you, Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one, Jesus, and to hear words from his mouth. You will be witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name, the name of Jesus. Okay? And finally, in verse 21, the Lord says to Paul, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I'm wanting you to pick up on the all people and far away to the Gentiles. God has a very specific mission for Paul. But that did not go over well with the crowd. When they heard Paul's testimony about this part, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles, this is what happened. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! Man, this must have been a scary moment. I mean, this was the, the very place that Jesus and the crowd had rallied and cried, Crucify! And Pilate washed his hands and turned them over, right? Now Paul is there in that same situation. Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! They could carry that out. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the commander, Claudius, ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and he asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, replied Paul. 
Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was also alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Now, we might miss um, some of what's going on here. Uh, first of all, we might read too quickly over the words they stretched him out to flog him. Right there. Uh, you know, we just kind of read that and we think, oh yeah, Paul's going to get beat, right? <laughs> no. Um, this is what Pilate had done to Jesus. It's a scourging. It's the use of the flagellum whip, which was designed as an instrument of Roman uh, inquisition and punishment. It consisted of a leather strap that was studded with pieces of metal or bone that were fastened to the leather part and it had a wooden handle. It's used for the worst criminals and often would cripple them and sometimes even kill them. In this particular case, Claudius is using it to beat the truth out of Paul, which is odd because I don't think Paul's withholding the truth. I think Claudius is frustrated that he can't figure out what's going on here. So he directed that I'd be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Now this flogging that Paul was about to get was different than the times that we'd heard about Paul when he had been, um, had the, received the 39 lashes. You've probably heard that term. This was different. It was also different from the beating with the rod. He talked about being beat with the rod three times, the 39 lashes five times. Um, this is a whole other level of brutality, this scourging, this flogging. You know, you would be claiming your citizenship as well. It was illegal to flog a Roman citizen, one who had not yet been tried in a Roman court and found guilty. And the consequences for Claudius could have been very great and everyone else involved in the process. That's why it says when they all realized it, that he was a Roman citizen, they withdrew immediately. And even the commander himself was alarmed, I bet. We might wonder why it was that Paul only had to say that he was a Roman citizen and it was believed. I mean, doesn't he have to prove that he's a Roman citizen? Didn't he have a card on him? No, Roman citizens did not carry a card like we would a passport or a license. Uh, they had a remedy for, for lying, you see. If you lied about your citizenship, um, you would be killed. And so that kind of prevented people from lying. There were 35 official stations throughout the Roman Empire whereby citizenships were recorded. And so it could be validated whether or not you were a citizen. So no, no, one, um, no one lied about this matter. People could pay money to get their citizenship, often by way of a bribe, as most likely Claudius had for himself, but it was a more prestigious thing to be born a citizen of Rome. And of course, that's what Paul claims for himself. <clears throat> In a way, he almost one-ups the commander. All of this may have changed Claudius's approach of how he handled the Apostle Paul, because it kind of seems that from that point on, he's a bit of a protector of him, while he's still trying to ascertain the nature of the charges that are being brought against Paul by these Jews. So that kind of closes off scene two, but unfortunately, Claudius still hasn't found out why. Why Paul is being attacked by these Jews. And so he decides to call together the religious leaders, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like a Jewish council of both political and religious leaders within the community, to question Paul and to try to get to the bottom of it. This brings us to scene number three, Paul before the Sanhedrin. Right here, Paul before the Sanhedrin, Acts 23, 1 to 11. Let's read it together. Paul's before the Sanhedrin. He looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest 
uh, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously, We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now, this is a very curious passage for sure. There's things that are happening here that don't maybe add up or make that much sense for us. Like, was Paul really unaware of who the high priest was? How was it that he didn't recognize him, right? Or, or maybe this part about um, Paul using his knowledge of the Pharisees and their belief in the resurrection and the Sadducees and their lack of belief in the resurrection. Was this just a ploy? Like, to use it as a decoy? So let's look at the first situation. It is interesting for sure, and we don't know why Paul wouldn't have recognized the high priest. Um, there, there have been some, some thoughts towards this, but really there's no satisfactory answer. I think we just have to live with the unknown. Uh, it does seem like Paul, in the face of violence, kind of lost his composure, at least momentarily. But he was quick to apologize for speaking against the high priest. He corrected his error. His assessment was correct of the high priest, but he still apologized. Um, the high priest was using the law, the high priest was claiming that Paul was breaking the law, but he was breaking the law by commanding him to be struck. And, and so it's kind of this bit of irony, but I think it just goes along with the theme that these particular Jewish people in Jerusalem were not actually too concerned about knowing the truth about the law and how it relates to who Jesus Christ is. More than anything, they just wanted to be rid of the Apostle Paul. The second question that we have here is, did Paul purposely bring up the resurrection just to pit the Pharisees and the Sadducees against each other as some kind of a decoy? Um, probably not. Um, it seems that he was trying to find common ground with the Pharisees, and he had more to say. It's like he was, um, you know, getting into the fact that the, the scriptures speak about the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. I want to bring you all the way around to understanding Jesus Christ, the Messiah, proven by the resurrection. And that's most likely where he was wanting to go, but he did not get the opportunity to because a dispute broke out. As soon as he spoke about the resurrection, this dispute took over. For the second time, the commander has had to intervene and rescue Paul from the Jews who would have torn him to pieces is what the fear of the commander was. I want us to just notice for a moment the last verse, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
You know, there were a few other times where Paul references that the Lord had visited him to encourage him. I'll just read a couple of them. In Acts chapter um, 18, Paul said that one night the Lord spoke to him in a vision and said, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. This is in Corinth. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And then close to the end of Paul's life, uh, when he's in Rome, and he was alone on trial, he makes this comment here in 2 Timothy 4.17, where he says, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So on more than one occasion, the Lord has stood with Paul, or the Lord has spoken to Paul, the Lord has encouraged Paul. We see here the nurturing nature of the Lord to encourage him along to be courageous, as he says here. Take courage, he says. But then also the directing of God in Paul's life. You're on mission for me. As you've testified in Jerusalem, so you will testify of me in Rome. Again, remember the theme of Acts. This is in keeping with what started at the beginning of the book of Acts when Luke is recording for us the words of Jesus to the first disciples. And he says to them, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive this power to do what? to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we're kind of seeing this come full circle. It started in Jerusalem and went out to Judea, Samaria, and it was heading out into all those Gentile regions. And then Paul makes a trip back to Jerusalem one last time to testify about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then his final trip to Rome where eventually he would die. This was God's plan. It was God's plan that Paul would be his chosen servant one who had seen the resurrection of Christ, one who had been spoken to by Christ himself, to be on mission, to go to all people, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul, you will be my witness to the ends of the earth, to Rome. And that's what that represents. You know, my wife reminded me of the fact that there, this, this is timing out very closely to a period when Jews were being expelled from the city of Rome uh, for a time. And uh, there could be some built-in irony here to God's plan. That God's plan to get Paul into Rome to be a witness there, as a Jew, uh, was to be a prisoner. At any rate, this leads us to our final scene. Scene number four. Paul being transferred to Caesarea, which is still within Israel in the region of Judea, but it's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Claudius was informed of a plot of 40 Jewish zealous Jews for the law who wanted to kill Paul. And so their plan was that they would not eat. They'd taken a vow to not eat any food until Paul was killed. And so they approach the Sanhedrin and they say to the Sanhedrin, you go to Claudius and you ask that we want to inquire of Paul one more time just to get a little more accurate information about what he believes. And in route, when, when Claudius releases him to go to the court, they would set an ambush and attack and kill Paul when he was on his way to the court. But Paul's nephew, Paul's sister's son, the scriptures say, I never thought about the fact that Paul had a sister and he had a nephew. And this nephew knew of this plan and took it to the commander. Paul sends his nephew to the commander and Claudius hears about the plan and immediately upon hearing it, he knew that enough was enough. It was time to get Paul out of Jerusalem before he was killed. And so this is how... It happens. Then 
he, Claudius, called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Okay, that's a crazy amount of uh, reinforcements. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And now this part. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Note, he doesn't put that I almost had him flogged without a trial. We'll carry on. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. And so ends the chapter and our story of the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem. This is the final piece. When the cavalry, uh, cavalry, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered this letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Paul's last visit to Jerusalem to testify of Christ did not go so well. I mean, not by human standards. What do we do with this? This story, this bizarre story, this escalating story of Paul time and again having his life threatened, being beaten by the people, and then almost being beaten by the Romans. It takes a lot for us to kind of sort through it to find any kind of sense to what this all means. But I think we have to come back up and look at the big picture. Paul was a servant of God, used of God to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ one more time in Jerusalem. One more time, why? One more time that they might grasp the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Their very Messiah who had been prophesied about for years that he had come as the Son of God to rescue them from their sin. But it seems they missed it. You know, just prior to his death, Jesus said this about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, Jesus loved Jerusalem. He loved the people of Jerusalem. His passion was for them, but they missed it. And it seems that they missed the crucifixion of Christ. They missed the resurrection of Christ, and now they're missing again the testimony of the Apostle Paul of the resurrection of Christ as he came back to Jerusalem one more time. And I think for us, we can miss it too. In fact, that's our theme this year for Easter. Um, we're going to be talking about don't miss it. On Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Easter Sunday, our theme is don't miss it. Don't miss Easter. We've been trying to emphasize Easter a little bit more this year in advance. Um, we challenge some of you to read the entire New Testament from January 17th through to April 17th, um, just to try to really be in the scriptures and know exactly this story that we're going to be celebrating on April 17th. We also have been doing these kid stories where we've been talking about the perfume and the coins, they're kid stories in the in-person service. 
uh, just as a way of trying to prepare our hearts as we move towards Resurrection Sunday. And some of you have been participating in Lent. And we put on there uh, a link to Right Now Media where you can go and learn about Lent and experience it if you wanted to be a part of that. And then as I've mentioned, we have our Monday Thursday service coming up on April 14th. So mark your calendar, 7 o'clock here in the Worship Center. It's going to be a communion service. It focuses on uh, the death of Christ. It's kind of a reflective service whereby um, we reflect on what Christ sacrificed on our behalf and what he asks of us. We leave in silence. And then we come back rejoicing on Easter Sunday morning, celebrating the resurrection. And so that will be on April 17th. And, and we really trust that you will join us. The 14th for Monday, Thursday, and then the 17th for Easter Sunday. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about an event that took place in history. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus, who was the Son of God, who came into the world to rescue sinners, and that happened through the cross. We must each decide what we will do with Jesus. When Paul was blinded by the light on the road to Damascus, he asked this question, Who are you, Lord? You know, I think that each and every one of us have to come to that place where we answer that question in our own hearts. We must come to that place of realizing that Jesus of Nazareth is risen to life and he is Lord. And what will you do with that? I'd like to lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the testimony of your word that speaks to our hearts about who you are, your plan of salvation, what it is that you call us to. Many do miss it. May we not and I pray too that as we've been encouraged by these first disciples that we too would be a witness to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.